So we're starting Galatians. I've been thinking about it for a little bit, like how do you introduce this book? And I thought about this story um, about 10 years ago. Uh, my wife and I, we, I had a 401k from my old job. So we decided to empty that out and buy a motorhome. And so we did that, we bought a motorhome. And we started taking these trips over to the coast. And like the first time I drove over to the, over to the coast in that motorhome, it, it was 31 feet long. I'm driving, I was driving like I normally drive, which is not all that safe. I'm more like get to the destination. That's rule number one. Safety is rule number two for me, which is not smart, but that's who I am. So I'm driving it like that. And we're, we're going along and I'm, and I'm stuck behind another motorhome. And the road over there is windy and just nasty. It's a nasty road in a car, in a motorhome, it's something else. So I'm just, I'm driving like, probably I shouldn't. And then we come to like a two lane area. So I'm like, I'm gonna pass this guy. And so it's windy still. And so I'm just like, what? As fast as that motorhome can go up this hill, around corners, there are dishes falling out of the cupboards and breaking on the ground. My kids are like going back and forth. They're like in a washing machine. And my wife looks over at me. She goes, what are you doing? And I'm just like, I looked at her and I said, I'm winning. (laughs) I know. Pray for my wife. So a couple weeks after that, I'm talking to this guy who's had a motorhome for a long time. And he's like, I was telling me, I've been going to the coast. It's been really fun. He's like, oh, I love that drive. He goes, I don't do any faster than 50 miles per hour. He said, I use every turnout. I just wave people by me. And I'm like, oh, no problem. He goes, when I get over there, I'm so refreshed and I feel so good. And I'm thinking back, man, when I got over there, I was like, I was ready for a nap. I was like exhausted. I was like, ah, oh, you guys go play. I'm just gonna go rest. I gotta unwind right now. And so the next time I went to the coast, that's how I drove. I just used the turnouts. I waved people by me and I arrived so rested. It was awesome. I think God wants us to arrive in eternity rested. Amen. And the way that that's gonna happen is how you define what winning is. What's a win? When it comes to this life that we've been given and the walk that we're on, what's a win? Is it doing more things for God? Is it checking off the tasks list you have that you think you're supposed to do for God? Is it your bucket list? Is it toys? What, when you really think about your life and the way that you wake up, not the right answer, but the real answer. What's the real answer? What's winning for you? I hope that's it. I think for too many of us, it's like me and my motorhome. It's just, we gotta drive, okay? So here's what Galatians is. If you could have gone back 2000 years and gone to this church or these churches, it's a group of them, and you went into this church, you would find that this church was full of solid, regular attenders. They were at church every single Sunday. They were the, they were the stallions. 
They tried hard to do what was right. They loved the scriptures. They filled up the prayer times, man. Their prayer times would be overflowing with people in them. They loved Paul so much that they said, we'll tear out our own eyes and give them to you, Paul. They were the leaders in their society, Rotary Club members, volunteering at the hospital, going into schools and helping people learn how to read, visiting sick people. They look at persecution and they welcomed it. Like these are, you'd be like, oh man, these guys are awesome. And yet, this is the book that's the harshest book in the New Testament. It's 149 verses of Paul Unplugged. It's like he drank a six pack of Red Bull before he sat down to pen this book. And it's sarcastic and it's angry and it's just passionate, right? In chapter one, twice he tells people, he wishes a group of people would go to hell, twice. I wish they would be accursed, it's literally, I wish they'd go to hell. Chapter three, he calls these people in these churches fools. You guys are fools, you're fools. Chapter five, verse 12, I'll read it for you. He says this, those that were trying to, I'll back up one verse. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Verse 12, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Translate, when they're being circumcised, I wish the knife would slip. That's what he just said. That's unplugged. Chapter four, verse 11, he goes, I think everything that I did up there, my whole first missionary trip up there was a waste it was a waste of time. I mean, he's absolutely hostile. It's insane. Now, why? Because the way they're driving their motorhome. You guys are crazy. That's not winning. So Galatians, it's written to help you and me reframe life. And too often, we're in a, a mentality that we're so certain is the right way to do things that you need a very sharp letter, a very kind of sharp slap in the face to wake you up and be like, oh, that's not winning? No, that's not winning. You're losing, you're going insane. You're gonna reach eternity exhausted. And that's not what Jesus wants for you. He wants you to arrive with righteousness and peace and shalom. And you're not at all living that way, okay? So here's what I uh, outline Galatians. It's like going back to school. So we, your kids are going back to school, you're going back to school. And you've got three classes. So class number one is history. Chapters one and two is history and it's the gospel. It's the history of the gospel. Next subject, theology. Theology 101, chapters three and four, and it's one thing. Does anybody know? Faith. That theology boils down to one singular thing faith. When you absolutely boil it down, it's faith. Yes, it expands into other areas, but that's it. It's faith. And then your last class is biology, chapters five and six. And it's a spirit-filled life. That's how you live. That's how you arrive rested. It's a spirit-filled life, right? So we got history, we got theology, and we got biology. And let me introduce the book by three kind of things that prime you for it. Okay, number one, like I have written in my Bible that Galatians is the gospel 
for believers. That it's not, hey, the gospel is where we begin and then we go somewhere else. Paul writes in Romans 1.16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God to salvation. Not it was the power of God to save me. It is right now. It continues to save me from living a life that's out of control and wrong. That it is the power in the life of the believer that continually writes us and corrects us. It's the gospel. That's what it is, okay? And the problem with it now is as a society, we've become very pragmatic. So what I mean by that is we don't really care how things work. We're not interested in popular mechanics anymore. You know, we're not interested in like taking things apart and why does a radio work? Or we don't want, just tell me how it works. Give me the three steps to make it work, right? It's like, we're like the karate kid. Um, remember the old one? I haven't seen any of the new, I think there's new ones, but Ralph Macchio, Miyagi-san, right? He wants to learn how to karate chop. I just want to learn how to karate chop. So what does he make him do? Wax on, wax off, paint the fence, right? Sand the deck. And he gets all mad, like, why are you making me do all this kind of stuff? I just want to karate chop these guys. Well, I'm trying to get you to not just know how to karate chop, but actually to train you in such a way that you respond correctly. That now just, it's out of response, right? But Christians now, what I found is when I talk with them, what they want is give me the three steps to a better marriage. Give me the three secrets to success. Give me the one key to being a better parent, whatever it is. That's, I don't really care about that other stuff. Don't give me theology. I just want the, I just want the three steps. We're like trained in that now. So we, we don't want deep transformation. We want the quick fix. Just give me the three steps. But it doesn't work. So what Galatians says is this. You have to immerse yourself in the gospel over and over and over and over again, waxing on and waxing off, waxing on and waxing off until, until the word becomes flesh and it dwells in you. And now you don't have to ask, what are the three steps to do this? You respond and you begin to think like Jesus does. And so it's not like I need these steps in all these ways. It's my life now begins to reflect and look more like Jesus. And the way that I think and the way that I respond in situations has been transformed. And I don't have to get three steps because I'm actually doing them naturally, right? It's like a baseball player that looks at a thousand curveballs. And in the first 100 or 200, he has to really think it through. But at the thousand and one or thousandth and tenth, whatever it is, his body just begins to react to it. He doesn't have to think because it's transformed him. He's able to hit those. That's what Galatians says happens with the gospel, with the spirit-filled life. That's the biology that happens to you. You become what you want to become, right? So it's the gospel for believers. You never leave the gospel. Martin Luther every morning would say this to himself. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for taking what I deserved to give me what you earned. That I am your nail. I'm the one that puts you on that cross and you are my righteousness. It was a way that Luther would wake up every morning and remind himself, I still need the gospel. This is what transformed me. This is what changes me. Okay. So that's number one. Um, number two is it's short. It's only 149 verses. 
It's like the book of Romans. If you've read Romans and you've read Galatians, you'll see things that are like similar. I think they have a different actually point in them, but uh, they're very similar. So I call Galatians Romans for the ADD crowd. (laughs) If you're attention deficit, good news. This book is for you. It's short. That doesn't mean I will be, but it is short. You can read it quickly. And I actually think we need it. I've mentioned this study a bunch. The BBC did a study on people using the internet Um, and because the internet has so much information and when you're searching for something, you have to like click off browsers all the time. And what they found is after somebody had used the internet a bunch, they had the attention span of nine seconds long, the same as a goldfish. So for many of you, I have to explain that again. BBC, goldfish, nine seconds, attention span. (laughs) So I think we need books like Galatians now, like they're not thick and long, like Genesis or something. They're just quick. He gets to his point. It's just rapid fire brilliance, all right? Then lastly, the background to this book is this. Paul and Bartimus, it's kind of why I chose it because it just launches from Acts really into Galatians. It's considered to be his first epistle, the first thing he wrote. So Paul and Barnabas go up to this region. They plant a bunch of churches. They tell a bunch of people about Jesus Christ. They're just so stoked. They're like, yes. Jesus, awesome. And then they leave and the people start doing well. They're telling their friends about Jesus. They're starting to respond through the power of God's spirit. Like it's brilliant. And then all of a sudden, in comes a group of people. They weren't the kind of people that went out on the front line and started churches. They waited for Paul and Barnabas to go out, get the snot kicked out of them, start some churches, and then they go in behind them. They're those kind of people. So they come in behind Paul and Barnabas. And they come to these churches right here and they begin to say, hey, hey, Jesus was good, but. In fact, there's two big errors when it comes to the gospel in the New Testament. The first one is um, fire insurance. That now that you're saved, go sin like crazy, right? Romans chapter five and six. Jude says this, Jude 1, 4, you've taken God's grace and turned it into sensuality. First Corinthians chapter five, right? There was a woman and a man, his stepmother or something, having sex with each other and the church glorified it. Hey, it's all grace, man. And Paul's like, no, no, you missed the point, right? So one error is to take God's grace and use it for a license to sin, sensuality. That's one error. This error is a different error. I think it's more one that's very common in church. And it's this subtle kind of one that you get saved by God's grace and that's awesome. And you start there, but then you gotta lend God a hand. I gotta help him out now. And that's a very, very different error, right? I think most people at some point are gonna struggle with that. So you start adding on like little activities that you do, little things that you say, well, this is going to make God love me more and this is going to do something better for me, right? Everyone does that. We all add religion on, right? So Paul, he writes 1 Corinthians to a church that was celebrating a guy that was sleeping with his mom or stepmom. And 1 Corinthians is much more gracious than Galatians. He comes more unglued on error number two than he does on error number one. You know why? 
because Paul knew what religion does. If you have to add more religion when you have a problem, what happens when you have the next problem? What's the solution? More religion. And the next problem, more religion, right? Paul knew that. He lived it. And you know this, it kills you. It buries you. It destroys you. You can't do it. That's why he becomes so unglued. This will destroy you. You cannot do it. So here's what happens. They go out, they plant these churches, they leave. These guys come in behind them and they're called Judaizers. And what they said was, hey, Jesus is great. We love Jesus too. He's so awesome. But if you wanna be serious, then you need to learn Hebrew. Oh, okay, well, okay, we'll learn Hebrew then. Okay, great. And you need to follow Torah. Oh, I'll follow Torah. Okay, let's, oh, we'll follow Torah too. And you gotta keep all the feasts. Oh, okay, we'll keep all the feasts too. Okay, and you need to get circumcised. What? <laughs> That's when they sent for Paul. They're like, wait a second. We'll do all that. What? <laughs> I don't know about that. They wish they had a cell phone. Somebody invent a cell phone because I wanna know if this is right or not. And they bring up the, the three main things that Judaizers always did was that circumcision. If you're serious, be circumcised, right? It is, you are now belonging to the family of Abraham. They understood the Bible. Judaizers understood the Bible. They knew that, that, that all of us would be grafted into the family of Abraham. Genesis 12, one through three, the Abrahamic covenant through you, through your seed will all the nations of the earth, all the families be blessed. So they knew that. And there was something that God told Abraham. What did he tell him? Be circumcised, Genesis 17. But what's the problem with that? When was Abraham declared righteous by God? Not in Genesis 17. It was years before in Genesis 15, where it says Abraham amen to God, literally in the Hebrew, and God counted it to him for righteousness. So the righteousness that we want does not come from circumcision. It has a whole different point. I'm gonna get into that now. But the righteousness that we desire and that we want, the right kind of living doesn't come through circumcision. It was given to Abraham before circumcision, right? So that's circumcision. The second one that they always said was, you need to keep the Sabbath day. You gotta keep the Sabbath day. And the third one was the dietary laws. You need to eat these kind of foods. So what in... Uh, in essence, a Judaizer said was this, God does not save pagans. God makes a pagan a Jew and then saves them. So if you really wanna be saved, first you've gotta go through the doorway of Judaism. And then once you're a good Jew, you might get saved. That's what they were saying. And so they came into these churches and they started doing that. And it's that that got Paul unplugged. Now, do we do the same thing a little bit? Like, don't we look at people and question their salvation sometimes? I don't know if that guy's saved. I don't know if she's saved. We'll ask questions like that, right? Like, how much does a person need to look like me before I say they're saved? Right? That's really what we do. We do it all the time. How did they vote? Who'd you vote for? Oh, you can't be saved if you voted that way. There is no way you're saved. You dress like that? Mm, I don't know if you're saved. You believe that theology? I don't know if you're saved. You listen to those songs? I don't know. You go to that church? Is the Pope saved? <laughs> right? It's exactly what we do. 
right? We're just like these people. We have a little Judaizer inside of us and it wants to separate the world into good people like me and bad people like you. And it's dangerous. And Galatians hammers that. It just hammers it. Don't do that stuff. It is the Magna Carta of church freedom. That's Galatians. It's brilliant. John Wesley, who was a missionary to America, left very disappointed because he wanted a gal and the gal married somebody else. So then he excommunicated them, excommunicated them both from the church. <laughs> and uh, they sent him home at that point. Bro, you're not for us, go home. And so on his way home, he, you know, it's a long story, but he comes back to London. Um, a buddy of his, John Holland, is read, just read to this group Martin Luther's introduction to Galatians. He hears it and he says, his heart was strangely warmed and he knew he was saved by grace. And then he goes on to become the man that we admire today, John Wesley. That's how powerful this book is. The introduction to it by Martin Luther. It was, what? Grace? Oh my goodness. What? It's too good to be true, right? It is brilliant, right? So we're gonna jump in. I won't make it far and that's okay. So verse one, we're now in the history He's gonna talk about his history, the gospel history, that kind of stuff. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches, plural, of Galatia. It's a circular letter. It was to go to all these churches that they had founded. Verse three, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of of God, of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the most unique greeting of any of Paul's epistles. Let me read a couple others to you. Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus, who are faithful, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us, with, blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world and predestined us. Just beautiful, okay? Colossians, Philippians. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all remembrances of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from this day until now. Colossians. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, on and on and on. In every other epistle, Paul will say, hey, this is who I am, kind of who's with me. I'm so thankful for you guys. He never says he's thankful for the churches in Galatia. 
He never says he prays for them. It's right after this, instantly just starts hammering on them. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. Instead of, man, I'm so thankful for you. Man, I've been praying for you. Ah, I'm so blessed by you guys. I can't believe you guys, that you guys have left Jesus, right? It's insane. He is, wow. The very first verse he gives is actually a point he's making. He does not do this in any other epistle. He is addressing a problem, okay? So they were questioning his authority. They were saying, is he really an apostle? Is he really got authority? So what the Judaizers did was this. They would come in after Paul and they'd be like, oh yeah, we know Paul. Yeah, Paul's great. But, but is he really an apostle? I'm not sure if he is. Was he one of the original 12 that walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus? Oh, no, he wasn't, was he? No. Did he get saved on Pentecost? No, no, he didn't. It was about eight years later. Yeah, he kind of missed the boat on that one. Yeah. Did he get saved in Jerusalem? No, he got saved out in Damascus. And we know about Damascus. That place is messed up. Yeah. Hmm. You know what? We're from the church in Jerusalem. We've got letters to prove it. See these letters right here? This is from James, right? We know Peter, man. Peter's like my best buddy. John BFF. They name drop all this stuff. And what they did by doing that was it made the people in Galatia think, oh, well, Paul must not be an apostle then. So in verse one, he's already having to address a giant issue. I'm an apostle. Not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with him. So he has to sit there and say, listen, my authority and my calling and my gifting is from God. Not from men or through men. Do we do the same thing to people? Like, where are you from? What's your degree? What's your, you know? Do we do the same thing? We like the ordinations of men. Someone says, hey, I was an assistant pastor with Chuck Smith. Oh, okay. Oh. <clears throat> all right, well, all right, so, uh, right? I went to DTS, I got my degree from DTS. Anybody know DTS? Dallas Theological Seminary, right? That's the big one. That's the Mecca. Oh, oh, well, okay. Sorry, I just went to Western, it's not very good, but that's all I can do. I'm just a moron, right? We, we do the same thing today. The truth is this, God ordains, the best a man can do is ratify it that God's giftings are given, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans chapter 12, liberally by God. And then what a man or a woman can do is then take what God has ordained and do something with it. My best story on this is a guy I got to know just a little bit kind of uh, because of being in Portland a bit. He's a phenomenal preacher, I love him. And he went to a seminary out on the East Coast and uh, it was a small class, like 10 guys or something. He got his doctorate. And they'd all written papers and they turned in their papers and they were getting the papers back one day in class. And this one guy, he got his paper and he got a B on it. And he was not happy about that. So he goes up to talk to the professor. He's like, you gave me a B on this paper. And the professor's like, yeah, because it was a B paper. He's like, no way. This is A work. 
He just started showing, like, look, this is A work right here. This is A work. And just kept going on and on. And the whole class is like, kind of like, this is awkward. How's this gonna turn out? So the professor finally just grabs the paper, scribbles out the B, puts an A, and then says this, listen, I'll give you an A on this paper, but you will always be a B preacher and hands him the paper. Oh man, I was just taking the B, man. You got a beat down. That's what you just got. Yeah, don't mess with professors. They're not perfect. We can, you know, think it's a degree or think it's this thing or an A on a paper that's gonna, no. God ordains authority. And that's what Paul is saying. God has ordained my authority, period. And I just ratified it. That's all I did. Brilliant. And then he does a typical greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. It's the mixture of the green that Greek people would do, charis, and the green that Hebrew people would do, shalom. So Paul in almost all of his epistles takes these two greetings and marries them together, charis and shalom. And it's almost a way of him saying, listen, there's a brand new family. The two have become one, Ephesians chapter two. That what used to be separated and divided and we were angry and we fought each other over all kinds of stupid things. Now we're one family, Keras and Shalom. Brilliant, beautiful, I love it, right? And it says from God, grace and peace, mercy and love, they originate from God. He is the source of all those things. They're from him. And then really, if you look at these verses, it's the gospel, right? God, the father who raised him from the dead, um, peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of God. It's like in the very opening, he's like already saying, listen, you've moved away from something and I'm gonna give it to you in a little nugget right here. Here's the gospel. Number one, here's the gospel. Number one that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's where it begins. The gospel does not begin with, God has a wonderful plan for your life. As much as we wanna make it that way, the gospel is not human-centric. The gospel is God-centric. That Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is the king that defeated death. That's what it is. And, and you, you see something just fascinating here by what Paul does in verse one, through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And then verse three, through God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grammar there is super clear. What he's doing is this by, by both the grammar and the putting Jesus first and then the Father and then the Father and then Jesus, he's saying this, they're one and the same. That God is Jesus, the King who conquered death. That's where the gospel begins. It begins nowhere else. It doesn't begin with spiritual laws. It doesn't begin with God's plan for our life. It begins with Jesus is God, the King who conquered death. That's number one. Number two, you keep reading, who gave himself. John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave, right? Unearned, undeserved. You'll never be good enough. Free, 
unmerited gift, period. The king gives. Thirdly, gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. When do you need to be delivered? When you're winning? When you're just killing it? No. When you're driving like a moron to the coast and almost destroying your kids. When you're destroying your own life. When you're out of control. That's, that's when. When you're losing, you're delivered from this present evil age. So Sunday, if you're here, we looked at, there's Genesis one and two, good, 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 very good. But then Genesis three, bad. From Genesis three to Revelation 19 is this present evil age. That what God wanted and how he designed things and the way it was supposed to be got fractured and ruined. And from that point on, the echoes of that keep, the, the mini quakes keep just fracturing the world. And we live now, not an age that God wanted or desired, but an age that we created, right? The Bible does not begin, Genesis 1-1, with God created the heavens and hell, does it? But really, a lot of us, because of... Um, I think it's more daunting than anything as, I, as I've read history because of like the, the impact of that thinking. A lot of us, we really think that way. God created heaven and hell. No, where did hell come from? James 3 has something really interesting if you read it. It says this. It says that our words kindle the fires of hell. Read James 3. Where did hell come from? you and me. We create hell. Now we're the ones because of our great, 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 great grandma and grandfather that our actions and our words create a hell. And then we today, because of the way that we act and the way that we live in this present evil age, by the words that we say to people, continue to kindle the fires of hell. Fascinating to me. So this present evil age, not the way God wanted it. But don't think like evil age Mad Max or something. Don't think that way because I think our enemy is too smart for that. What happens when we're really faced with like blatant evil? What happens to us as a country? We go to God. That's exactly it. Yesterday, we celebrate the 17th anniversary of 9-11. What happened the Sunday after 9-11? Churches were packed, packed. In fact, it lasted, uh, people that study it, for about a year. Why? Because we saw something so evil, it freaked us out and it put us on our knees and we started saying, God, it, please have grace and mercy upon us. If you don't have grace and mercy upon us, we're doomed. Don't think that way. I think the right way to think about the evil age is this. It's Ecclesiastes 12 verse one, where Solomon says this. Hey, young person, young person, chase God while you're young before the evil days get you. And then guess what he does from there on? He talks about the aging process. Before your teeth are all gone, before your eyes can't see, before the tween of a bird wakes you up and you can't go back to sleep. Before, like he just, it's the most brilliant thing. 
Like it's just, your hair all falls out and turns gray. Before that happens, chase God. Because there's coming a time, young person, where waking up in the morning, you just say, ow, I woke up. That's coming for you. <laughs> That's what Solomon says. It's so awesome. Where you forget everything. Like, where did I put my keys? And you take medication or a supplement to remember, but you can't remember the name of the name of the supplement. So you're like, ah, where are my keys to go get my supplement? I can't remember. That's coming for you. And he calls it evil days. So here's what an evil day is. It's the ability that the enemy does to us to lull us into a sleepwalk. Or we're just like we're zombies. We wake up repeat, wake up, repeat, wake up, repeat. And then it's too late. You're in a hospital hooked to tubes wondering what happened. Well, you're lulled to sleep by this present evil age. And I don't know if it's tougher today than a thousand years ago, but man, I sure think so. I think technology has made it so easy to medicate the good angst in us to pacify, just acquisition, right? There's always something new. iPhone XS came out today. Oh man, I gotta get one of those, right? There's always a new trinket to get. And we can be entertained like nothing before. I was talking to Mark about this. I'm like, like as a kid, I could never imagine like being able to go on a screen and like watch anything I want for as long as I wanted. Like it's unbelievable. People Netflixing like an entire season or an entire like 10 seasons of a show like over a week. You're like, dude, you did what all week long? I watched like 75 hours straight of some show. <laughs> Whoa, that's crazy. I know. What does that do to you? It dulls you. Ultimately, it dulls you to the good angst of something's wrong. So I think we live in the toughest generation ever when it comes to these things, technology, acquisition, just stuff. There's always new stuff to acquire, right? You know, just inventing new stuff. It's constant. We can be entertained to death and it just lulls us into this evil, just <sighs> zombie nest. And we miss out on the brilliant life God has for us. Ephesians 2.10, the good works that he has prepared in advance for us. God said, I got these incredible things to do with you, Matt. Come on. No, thanks. Netflixing right now. Can't do it, God. And we miss out. Who has ever been like really happy when you watch like 75 hours of Netflix? I've been like, man, that was such a wonderful use of my time. I'm doing that again. I hope nobody. It's dangerous. That's, that's the evil of our age. Lulling us into this sleepness, into this zombie existence. Careful. Right? So he's going to deliver us that from how? Greener pastures. Allowing him to lead you to better things, a better way to live life. Stop living life in this way. It's destroying you. Follow me. Learn from me. Spirit filled life. This is life. And he invites you into that. And then one more thing. I thought I'd make it further than this, but I won't. It, it says this, and this is really important to some people. According to the will of God and the Father. There's this idea and it tracks back to the second century, a guy named Marcion or Marcion, depending if you make the C hard or soft. And he said this, he said, the God of the Old Testament, angry, vindictive, terrible. Jesus, God of the New Testament, Nice, kind, 
two different gods. And we still have kind of that in our mind. That the father's like in heaven right now, fuming, those wicked, sinful people. I'm gonna pound them. And the son is like, no, 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 dad, dad, don't do that. Like trying to pacify the father, right? What does this say though? That all this happened, the gospel happened according to the will of our God and father. Just the term father being used for God is such a radical concept. Look at the Greek gods. Look at the Roman gods. Look at gods from just about any other religion. They're not at all fatherly, right? And a while back I was thinking about this because I was thinking about like, you fall in love with your wife, right? Guys, yeah. amen. <laughs> you missed it, man. I just gave you such a softball. You could have been like, I was the first one. <laughs> it's a process. You start dating her, you learn about her. You're like, wow, I really, really, really like this girl. And then pretty soon you're like, I think I love this girl. And at some point, a man decides that this is the woman for the next 60 years, I will tease and annoy, get a ring, right? It's a process though, you fall in love, okay? You're with your buddies, you learn to love them, right? Even though they got weird stuff with them and they pick their nose, at least they don't eat it. They text when they talk to you, you're like, it's just my buddy, you know? I ah, can't explain him, but he's my friend and I love him right? Fatherhood's so different than that. I remember when I had my first, my wife had our first, <laughs> and uh, she had just been born, and I was the first one to hold her. And in an instant, I loved her. It wasn't a process of falling in love. It, wasn't, it was instant love, and it made no sense, right? Hairless, cone-headed, nose smashed in, eyes bugged out from the pressure, kicking, screaming, puking, peeing, just like, whoa. And yet I held her and I just went, oh, I'll die for this child. Instant, like nothing else. I've never experienced anything like that. And then this is the second thing I thought, and I don't know if this is everyone, but it was for me. I thought she is the most beautiful thing in the world. And I, and I don't mean that like, you know, poetic. I really thought supermodel, Oh my goodness, supermodel right here. Like I was convinced of it. Like I could not believe how beautiful she was instantly, right? And, and then uh, I look back on pictures of her as a child. She's beautiful, but I'm like, well, she's actually, yeah. She's just a pretty baby. I don't mean that in a bad way, but you know, in the moment it was just like so amazing. Like she's the most beautiful, get away. Get beauty right here. It was instant. Okay, that's, that's fatherhood. That's what God is saying about you and me, instant. Peeing, puking, face smashed, messed up, crying, sobbing. I'm your dad and I love you. I'm your dad. I don't need to fall in love with you. I already do love you. That while we're yet sinners, God demonstrated his love for us, that God died, that Jesus died for us. That's, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. And the way that we live, it's not 80 years. Do you know that? Like the trajectory, the way that I drive my motorhome to the coast is not just affecting 80 years. Do you know that? Jesus says, if you believe in me, you shall never die. Do you believe that? 
That's what Jesus says. So it's not 80 years. I think that's why Paul comes so unglued. He's like, you're sitting in a trajectory for eternity right now. You gotta straighten this thing out. You gotta learn to live life right because it's affecting your eternity. Not 80 years, 80 billion years. That's what he's saying. That's why the gospel is so good. And so Jesus, as we come to the table tonight, I ask personally that you would forgive me for my Judaizing, that I could become a fool when I try to improve on the good news that my king, the creator of the cosmos, the sustainer of all things, gave his life for me. There is nothing that I can do to improve on that. Forgive me, Lord, for being judgmental and wanting people to look just like me in order to be saved. That the way that you save and the way that you work is marvelously wide and brilliant and bigger than I can imagine. And it all comes through your grace and faith in the finished work of the cross. And so I ask, Lord, as we come to the table tonight, that you would feed us the good news and it would train us in godliness.